So uh, one of the great things about Advent is we actually get to spend a bit of time with Mary, which for us as Protestants is a little difficult because we're not sure what to do with her. Uh, but I think she's amazing. So I really enjoyed that last week we were able to think about her song, the song of praise and protest, and this week we get to hear of the Annunciation, which is an astounding story, isn't it? And it's only found in Luke. In fact, none of the other Gospel writers really talk about Mary very much. Uh, she doesn't get a big lot of air time in Matthew. The angel Gabriel goes to Joseph in Matthew. Uh, John never talks about her by name, although she is present. Uh, and Mark uh, gives her very little airtime at all. And Paul, thinking about other New Testament writers, doesn't talk about her at all either. So Luke is the one who thinks Mary is important. And I wonder whether he knew her. Uh, and so some of the things that she was saying and doing at the end of her life, he was then applying back into the beginning of her life. If you go to Nazareth, which Bonnie and I did this year, uh, so we have been to Bethlehem and Nazareth, and we went to that refugee camp, so if we go to the next slide, uh, the people there will tell you uh, that this conversation between Gabriel and Mary did not happen in one place that it happened in two places. Uh, so the first place where they would tell you that it started was at the church of St. Gabriel, which is an Orthodox church, which is built over the old well. So this is the old well that goes back to the time of Mary. It's actually called Mary's Well now. Uh, and they will tell you that the conversation started here. And that it either continued as they walked down the road to where her parents lived, so the next slide, or, so this is uh, the Church of the Annunciation, uh, so this is a, an amazing, magnificent, astounding three-level church, so that's the bottom level, and that thing you can see there is the cave in which her parents and she lived as a child. Uh, with an altar in it. So it's had all Byzantine churches, Crusader churches, all kinds of churches built around it and over it. Uh, and then in the 1960s, this three-level church. So this photograph is taken uh, on the mezzanine floor that looks down onto this. And then above this level is another church, uh, um, which has a big hole in the middle, so you can look down on all of this, but has its own altars all around for people to come and worship on that space. And the people of Nazareth will tell you that this is where the conversation finished, in her parents' house. This mind-blowing conversation, with echoes of the great mothers of faith, Sarah and Hannah, and titles beyond anything that she could imagine, titles that did not belong to this poor, poor girl, this poor peasant girl. These titles belonged to someone from a powerful family, from a wealthy family, somebody, somebody living in a grand house in Jerusalem or one of the large Roman cities. And she's not alone in thinking that. So if we look at the next slide, the great patrons of Western art also thought that Mary should not be a poor peasant girl and that this really did 
apply to somebody who lived in a noble house. And so if you go on the internet and if you look at all the art about Mary, you will find two things about her in Western art. One is she is wealthy. Uh, so here she is, looking quite wealthy. Or, and, the next slide, quite humble and meek. Obedient. Not much of a backbone to her at all. And that is not the Mary we, admit we meet in Luke's Gospel. So who is this Mary that we meet there? So the next slide. Well, she was a, a peasant girl of about 14 or 15. She lived in a cave. That cave is the traditional site of where her parents lived with her family, at least in Luke's Gospel. It's a different story in Matthew's Gospel, but we're not going to think about that. Matthew's Gospel, they live in Bethlehem. And this village they live in, Nazareth, is a very poor village, not highly thought of. It's dependent on one well, that well that we just looked at, which means the maximum number of people that could have lived there was about 500, uh, and probably less. So it's a very small village. Everyone knew everyone else. And she was a young girl who had no say in her life. She lived her life doing what her mother commanded her. She was learning what it meant to be a dutiful wife. So that when her father arranged a marriage, as he had to Joseph, she could honour her family name by being that dutiful wife. She would fulfil her duty well. And, to, and so to this young peasant girl, Luke tells us, comes the archangel Gabriel. So the next one. This is by a Nigerian artist. And it's a lovely picture because the archangel or the angel takes his shoes off. This is holy ground where Mary is. This conversation is holy ground looking back to the story of the burning bush. And we often talk about Mary being willing, which assumes she had some kind of choice here. But Mary did not live in a world where she had much choice about anything, really. She simply did as she was told. And even in this conversation, I'm not sure she really had much choice. There's really no choice in Gabriel's words. It's not, would you like to? You're invited to think about. It's just, this has happened. And Mary's response is not one of choice, just confusion. How can this be? I haven't, I haven't known a man. What are you talking about, you crazy angel? <laughs> she is bewildered by all the angel says that she is favoured, that she will bear a son. He will be called the Son of the Most High. God will give him the throne of David his father. And he will rule over Jacob's house forever. And there will be no end to his kingdom. What can any of this mean for her as a 14 or 15 year old girl living in Nazareth? It's all mumbo jumbo. It's beyond her. And while we usually put a great deal of store in her yes, 
in many ways she simply does what as she is expected. And one of the commentaries I read noted something that we often overlook. The tone of the conversation changes when Gabriel says, Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman who was labelled unable to conceive is now six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible for God. Maybe just before this is where the conversation of the world comes to an end. Mary's like, this is far too much. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm going home. I'm going back to my mum, and I'm going to talk to her about this. And the archangel's like, this is not going to plan at all. So Mary goes home, and then Gabriel comes back and says, look, even in her old age, your, your relative Elizabeth is now pregnant. And at that point, at that point, when Mary knows that she is not alone in this, at that point she knows she can go and be with her relative Elizabeth, that she will have someone to make sense of all of this with. At that point, she says, yes. Not that she had any choice. It seemed to me it was going to happen whether she said yes or not. And a number of commentators note that the story begins with her yes, despite all that that might mean for her as we heard from the movie. And at the end of the story we have Jesus saying yes in Gethsemane, despite all that will mean for him as the story comes to a conclusion and moves to a new phase. The story in Luke is bookended by her yes and his yes. And in Luke's Gospel, she immediately gets up and goes to Elizabeth. There's no mucking around, there's no going off to talk to Joseph about any of this, not that she would have been allowed to do that. Just getting some family members and going to Elizabeth, who lives, tradition says, very near Jerusalem. We also went there, we talked about that last week. So another picture. This is in the Church of the Annunciation. At some point, maybe with Elizabeth, maybe later after the birth, I think Mary more than accepts, more than says yes. In Luke, at least, she understands that something significant is happening here. In Luke, she becomes someone of significance for those who joined the way of Christ. More than just Jesus' mother, she becomes an icon or, or a model of the incarnation and what it is all about. And she also acts as a model for what it means to be a disciple. So last week I talked about John the Witness being a model of discipleship. This week we're offered Mary as a model of discipleship. So just as hearing about Elizabeth helped her say her yes, helped her overcome all her fear and bewilderment, helped her accept her role to do what was expected, even though that was the exact opposite to what she thought was expected when she went to the well. Through this yes, we know that we are not alone. We know 
that God is with us at all times. And we are invited to reflect on those who have helped us say yes. Who are the people who have helped you in your moments of bewilderment in your faith? Who are the people who have walked beside you? And it also invites us to reflect on those that we have and continue to journey alongside. Who have we been an Elizabeth for? What other people have we acted as Elizabeth did for Mary? Another commentator describes this meeting with the angel as Mary being pursued by love. Divine, covenant, hesed love. And she becomes the vehicle for this hesed love. This hesed love is embodied in Jesus. And as Mary shows in the story, every time, every time, every story about this love throughout Scripture shows that this hesed love is upsetting, unsettling. It's very disruptive. It is intrusive. I love that word. It shakes us about and doesn't allow us to hold to how we have always seen things. At times, it's very dangerous. It was very dangerous for Mary. But it's also life-giving. It seeks justice for all, peace for all, as the people of Bethlehem said. It invites us to see the world very differently. And that's, well, that's difficult. Just look at the story with Mary. For most of it, it was beyond her. And even when she said yes, she had no idea what she was saying yes to. But she knew she had someone she could go and talk to to try to work it out. Her mother wasn't going to be much help at all. So what does Mary teach us about the way of love? Especially as we look to celebrate Christmas. At some time today, we magically move from Advent 4 to Christmas Eve. I'm not sure at what point that's going to happen. Probably at about 11 o'clock when we take out all the Advent 4 stuff and put in all the Christmas stuff. It's a difficult day. Most Christmases, you have a clear... This is when Christmas starts. Today it's just somewhere in, in the middle here. But it also asks us who have been the Elizabeths in our lives and who are we Elizabeth for? So I invite you to pause for a moment and to think about all of those things. And if you want, you can have a conversation with the person next to you. There might be another slide, I'm not sure. Oh, yes. So have a conversation, and then in a minute or so, Cliff will invite us to pray.